0: Greetings. We hope you enjoy this podcast of a Science for the Public program. If you'd like to see the video of this program, just search the title on our website under the Archives tab at the top of the homepage, www.scienceforthepublic.org. Good evening. I'm Yvonne, staff for Science for the Public, and we are delighted to join forces tonight with Belmont Library to present a major author on the issue of psychiatric medications. The title of this talk is Psychiatric Drugs, Why They Often Fail Us Over the Long Term. Robert Whitaker is Uh, an esteemed journalist who's specialized in covering medicine and science. His articles on psychiatry and the pharmaceutical industry have won a George Polk Award for Medical Writing, a National Association of Science Writers Award for Best uh, Magazine article. And in the 1998, he wrote a series on abuses in psychiatric research that was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Public Service. Um, he's the author of a number of books, all of which are available in the library or the library system, and, and one that is important tonight is this one, it may be familiar to you, Um, Anatomy of an Epidemic, Magic Bullets, Psychiatric Drugs, and the Astonishing Rise of Mental Illness in America. And this is an acclaimed source for people interested in both the issues and the history of psychiatric medications. It's really very interesting in that regard. And it's very accessible. It's very important information, but very accessible. Robert Whitaker is also the founder of an organization you may have heard of, MAD in America. That is another important resource for anybody interested today in psychiatric issues and in the effort to address the psychiatric drugs uh, problem. It's a very great honor to welcome
1: Robert Whitaker. Thank you very much. I just want to say, I think I was supposed to sit down during that. <laughs> I just want to say, Yvonne, thank you for having me again. This is the third time Yvonne's invited me to give a, a talk for her organization, so it's really nice to be here, and so thank you. So here's what we're going to do in the 45 minutes. So talk real briefly about the, the narrative, the scientific narrative that was told to the American public in the last 40 years and that we as a society organized ourselves around that narrative And we'll look at how that really led to this expansion of use of psychiatric drugs. Then real quickly, we'll just look at some public health data. And then we'll go into this uh, thing about, is the story that we were told, is it really in sync with the science? And when I say the science, I mean the science that was done by mainstream American psychiatry and international psychiatry. And then finally, and we'll do all this in 45 minutes, we'll see if when we look at the science, going back to this initial question, why do drugs so often fail us over the long term. We'll see if there's a scientific answer to that question. So if we look at how we got to today and uh, our, what our beliefs or ideas about mental disorders and our use of psychiatric drugs, it really stems back to 1980. So in 1980, the American Psychiatric Association published a new edition of its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, dsm 3 Now prior to 1980, if you look at the DSM-1 and the DSM-2, there were these conceptions of mental disorders. There was some thought that the most severe disorders often had a biological cause, say schizophrenia, but the vast majority of psychiatric difficulties were seen as psychological in kind or environmental in kind. In other words, you were having a response to your environment that was often triggering, well, (coughs) excuse me, a neurosis, depression, anxiety. So, But the vast majority of people didn't suffer from illnesses. They suffered from you know, psychological difficulties. And if we think of psychological difficulties, they were often seen as temporary. You had something go wrong in your life, you had some difficulty, that would pass and that you would then go on with your life. And so, for example, if you there was a survey done in 1985. This was before this new idea was really sold to us. They asked Americans, the National Institute of Mental Health, what causes depression and most people said well you know you have these things happen in life that are difficult and they asked well how long does depression last and most people said well it will pass with time now that public attitude actually was consistent with uh, studies that had been done in the past that depression was an episodic disorder so what changes in 1980 and this is really profound Jeffrey Lieberman, who uh, until recently was the president of the American Psychiatric Association, when speaking about dsm 3 that's the book published in, in 1980, he said, this is the most important book that's been published in the last 50 years. He didn't mean just in psychiatry. He met in American society, and actually the global society, and I agree. That book has done more to change us, to change our sense of self, how we raise our kids, How We Respond to Crises than any other book. It has changed our thinking as a population. So what happened in 1980? In 1980, the American Psychiatric Association reconceptualized psychiatric disorders, and they're going to say, we're going to see them as illnesses of the brain. And we're going to see depression as an illness. We're going to see anxiety as an illness. Uh, Attention deficit disorder did not exist before 1980. They constructed that in 1980, and we're saying, that's an illness, ADHD. And when they did this, uh, so this is the conception behind this, and as soon as they published this book, they began ramping up a public relations effort to sell the United States on this new conception. Now, I don't know if many of you remember this book. I certainly do. There was a very famous book, popular book, published in 1984 by Nancy Andreessen called The Broken Brain. Do any of you remember this book? Very influential book because it said, this is the book that is telling us to reconceptualize psychiatric problems as illnesses of the brain. And in that book, it says, our new conception is that these are discrete illnesses, so anxiety is as different from depression, is as different from ADHD, manic depressive illness, schizophrenia, as car- a cancer is from a cardiovascular problem. They're discrete illnesses. Now, do you see, there's many things that are happening here. But the big thing is, where's the problem now? It's in the inside of the individual. It's not in how you organize your society. It's not even about events, okay, that may have happened to you. It's that the broken brain, your brain has a problem, okay? There's something pathological inside your brain. This is the new conception. And you'll see that Nancy Andreasen in this book, The Broken Brain, says, and we think we are finding out the pathology of these disorders. There are chemical imbalances in the brain. You've all heard about chemical imbalances, and that these drugs we have now that we're getting can fix those imbalances, much like insulin for diabetes. So this is the soundbite that we're going to organize our society around. And it is a soundbite of fantastic, incredible scientific progress. Think about how complex the human brain is. The most complex thing in the universe, right? We still don't really understand that. We don't know how consciousness arises. We were being told that they had identified the very molecule that causes madness, or the very molecule that causes anxiety, or the molecule that causes a kid not to like school, or whatever it might be. So first of all, think about that. They've identified the very molecule that's amiss, and they can fix it. Now, if that's true, that's the greatest medical discovery, certainly of the 20th century, and maybe of all time given the complexity of the human brain. Now, so the American Psychiatric Association ramps up its uh, desire to sell this story to the American public. Pharmaceutical companies actually began funding the APA to run educational campaigns to sell this new disease model. They even ran uh, efforts to train psychiatrists to know how to tell the press about this new model. And then it really kicks off in 1987. Prozac uh, uh, arrives on the market. This is the first SSRI, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. It is seen as a wonder drug, a miracle drug. It is so fantastic. The drug itself is on the cover of magazines, New York Magazine, Time Magazine. And as this drug is marketed, we are told that... (laughs) Psychiatry has so unlocked the mysteries of the chemistry of the brain they're beginning to wonder, what happens if we make everybody happy all the time? Because that's what they were saying. And we could even give people designer personalities. This is going to kick off the big explosion. We're going to get a bunch of SSRI antidepressants. Next, we're going to get what are known as atypical antipsychotics. They're said to be so much better than the first generation. And there are these constant campaigns about how mental disorders go undiagnosed and undertreated. And we get, basically, the explosion of this use of these drugs in this industry. In 1987, our country spent $800 million on psychiatric drugs. By 2010, we were spending about $40 billion. So that's a 50-fold increase in a market. Now, by any standards, if you just look at this from a capitalistic point of view, a market-growing point of view, this is a story of great success. By the way, now we have one in five Americans taking a psychiatric drug on a daily basis. By the time our kids hit age 18, it's about the same. At least 20% are taking a psychiatric drug. If you go to many colleges now and ask their uh, admissions counselor what percentage of their incoming freshmen are taking a psychiatric drug and have a, um, uh, a diagnosis, it's, it's anywhere from 25 to 30%. And more than 50% of kids at many colleges now access mental health services at some point during their four years. Okay, So, if we go back to 1987, this should be a story of progress. We've identified biological causes. We get drugs that fix those um, chemical imbalances like insulin for diabetes. Now, the history of medicine tells you when you make discoveries like this, where you, when you identify the pathology of a disease and then you have a treatment that is an antidote to that pathology, you'll see the burden of that disorder diminish in, 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 in society. Does that make sense? The best example of this, of course, is antibiotics. People used to die from bacterial infections. You get antibiotics. People no longer die. It's a magic bullet. And basically, this is an antibiotic model of psychiatric problems. You have a pathology and you can fix it. Okay. So, Has it led to a lessening of the burden of mental distress and illness in our society? Exactly the opposite. In country after country, well, first just in the United States, one of the things I did in this book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, in order to begin to question this uh, disease model was just look at the number of people on disability, in other words, receiving a government payment due to mental illness. In other words, they had been declared eligible to receive that payment because of this disability. Now in nineteen eighty-seven, when Prozac arrived, we had one point two million adults on disability due to mental illness. Okay? Then we get this explosion in diagnosis, explosion in the use of the drugs. And today, any idea where we're at? Well, we're over five million now. So that's like a fourfold increase. And obviously there's been a population increase, but it's nothing it's not a fourfold increase. How about kids? Now, before 1980, it was rare for a kid to get a psychiatric diagnosis. Attention deficit disorder became the first one we began to use. Anyway, in 1987, there were 16,000 children in this country who, guardians, for one, you know, guardians, parents, whatever, who received a, a, dis, a payment because their child was said to be disabled by mental illness. We're now at about 800,000. So you see, and then this is, these are just... Certain markers of the the burden of mental disorders in your society, but they're all going up. Depression is now maybe the leading burden of disability worldwide. And one of the things that happened after I wrote uh, this book, (coughs) people said, ah, the reason you're getting this increase in disability in the United States is because you're a Darwinian society. It's only happening in the United States. So then I began looking at disability data for every country that had made uh, adopted this paradigm of care and in particular adopted widespread use of antidepressants. Same thing, soaring in country after country. So that begins to ask, well, is there some connection? Is there something about this way of conception rather than reducing the burden? It's actually increasing the likelihood that People may end up disabled or semi, uh, you know, not functional because of mental disorders, okay? just a question raised by the disability numbers. So now you're going to ask yourself, well, let's look into this uh, disease model we were sold. Is it true? Okay? First thing you want to look at is that chemical imbalance theory of mental disorders because that's the heart of this disease model. So if you go back to that and you you find out uh, where it came from, you find out that it did not come from discoveries in human beings, people with these disorders. It came from an understanding of how drugs act on the brain. So, for example, so how do neurons communicate in the brain? You have a presynaptic neuron, which releases a molecule called a neurotransmitter or a chemical messenger into the tiny gap between neurons, which we call the synaptic cleft. And that molecule, whether it be dopamine or serotonin or any number, what it does then, it binds with receptors on the receiving neuron. And we say it's like a key that fits into a lock. You probably heard that metaphor. And when that happens, when that molecule is secreted from the first neuron, goes into that gap, and then binds with the, receiving, with the receptor on the receiving neuron, that's how the first neuron causes the second neuron to fire. That's how these messages get passed, okay? And then finally, to complete this bit of science... Once this happens, once that molecule binds with the receptor, it has to leave it really quickly, so we have a crisp messaging system. And that neurotransmitter, that chemical messenger, is removed from that synaptic cleft in two ways: either goes back up under the presynaptic neuron via called reuptake channels, and it's stored there for reuse; or else an enzyme comes along and it metabolizes that chemical messenger, and the metabolites are carted off as waste. Okay, so that's They began to understand, this is how neurons communicate in the brain, and then they begin to understand how drugs perturb that normal functioning. So an SSRI, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, what is it doing? What it does is it blocks that reuptake channel back into the presynaptic neuron. So now serotonin stays in the gap longer than normal. You're upping serotonergic activity, so they hypothesize maybe depression is due to too little serotonin. So you see the hypothesis the low serotonin hypothesis is born from understanding how the drugs act on the brain. In similar fashion and the, the chemical imbalance theory of mental disorders really has two legs. One is the depression leg, the other is the psychotic leg. So how do antipsychotics work? And whether if we go back to the old drugs Thorazine, haldol, the new ones basically they do the same and then some additional things. So what those drugs do is they block the receptors on the postsynaptic neurons. It's like pouring glue into the lock. So now the dopamine can't bind with the receptors on the receiving neuron. You're lowering dopamine activity. You're thwarting normal dopamine activity. This, by the way, is why people feel on antipsychotics, often feel lethargic, demotivated, like zombies. It's because you're blocking the dopaminergic pathway. So they said, it's a drugs. Block dopamine, maybe schizophrenia is due to too much dopamine. The opposite, okay? All right, so this is where the hypotheses came from. Understanding the drugs, they looked at what the drugs did, and then they hypothesized the cause were the opposite. So now they have to find out, is depression due to little, too little serotonin? Or is schizophrenia due to an overactive dopamine system? Now, there's a long, long history of the research into that, if we just focus on the low serotonin theory of depression, <coughs> they began measuring uh, serotonin in depressed individuals, late 70s, early 80s. And in 1984, the NIMH said, it doesn't look like we're finding any problem with the serotonergic system in depressed patients. They do a bunch more, remember Prozac comes out? There's a bunch more ways they try to assess serotonergic activity. And in 1999, In the American Psychiatric Association's own textbook, they said this. We've investigated this in every way imaginable, and we have not found that low serotonin is present in depressed patients. And then in their own textbook, they said, really, it was sort of a stupid hypothesis all along, because there's no reason a disease, a pathology of a disease, should be the opposite of a drug that has been used to treat the symptoms. That was in 1999. In 2001, you'll see the president of the APA making a public announcement in a, in a magazine. We now know that depression is due to too little serotonin. They ran campaigns to say they were fixing chemical imbalances. In 2005, the American Psychiatric Association even mounted a public education campaign to say, how many Americans understand that depression is due to low serotonin? Basically, we all did now, 87%. And they even said a psychiatrist is an expert in fixing chemical imbalances. So you have science saying we're not finding and a different message going out to the public. The low, the high the dopamine hyperactivity story is a, is a little bit more complicated. But as early as 1992, researchers were saying the simple, overactive dopamine hypothesis for schizophrenia is no longer credible. And you'll, you'll read things like this. In 2005, Kenneth Kendler, co editor in chief of psychological medicine, who's one of the world famous scientists researching this whole hypothesis, said, We have hunted for big, simple neurochemical explanations and have not found them. My favorite sort of renunciation of this is twofold. After I did this book in 19, uh, the book for the first edition was published in 2010, I was uh, asked to do a grand rounds at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, their psychiatry department. One of the purposes, I think, was to make me look bad, but anyway, I gave the grand <laughs> rounds. And after the, at the, I gave a thing, and then there was a, a rebuttal. And the guy who gave the, the psychiatrist gave the rebuttal, Andrew Nirenberg, said, Listen, you made us look bad. You said we, we you know, we told the, you said we believed in chemical imbalances. We haven't believed in that since that's an outdated model. Since that model is 25 years old, it's outdated. So now it's my turn. I said, you know, you're right. It was outdated in 1987, but I'm pretty sure you forgot to tell the American public. And all the heads went up and down like that. But my, then my other favorite one is this: Ronald Pies. He's the former editor-in-chief of the uh, Psychiatric Times, which is like a trade publication for um, American Psychiatric Association. In 2012, he wrote this. "The The chemical imbalance story is a kind of urban legend never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists now there's been others that the chemical imbalance theory has completely fallen apart in psychiatric research circles what it means for all of us is that we organized ourselves around a false metaphor One that told people when they were diagnosed they have something wrong with their brain, they have a broken brain, and that's a metaphor that says, don't just take the drug for a time, you have to be on this drug forever, right? This is the heart of the problem, (laughs) is that we've organized ourselves, by the way, worldwide, around a story of scientific progress, but when you dig into it, it's a marketing story, one that certainly helped sell drugs, but it also boosted the prestige of the American Psychiatric Association, so it was used for that purpose as well. Okay, so that's the chemical imbalance story. Now we'll go to the question about, how about research into the long-term effects of psychiatric drugs, which really, the reason <coughs> what this book was really meant to do was look at the, what science is telling us about the long-term effects of psychiatric drugs and really... The reason this book has had an impact, and I've sort of been on the road for eight years now, uh, 100 days a year, 120 days a year, speaking in many countries, is because, oddly enough, it was the first real effort to look at what science is telling us about the long-term effects and make that available to the public. If you follow this story, the 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 first effort to really create an evidence base for psychiatric drugs is around the antipsychotics, okay? So the antipsychotics are the centerpiece of the story, and then we'll move to the antidepressants. So as you know, drugs get approved because you'll have a placebo group and a medicated group, and if the drug knocks down the symptoms a little better than placebo over six weeks, that will get FDA approval. And that's how we test the uh, safety and efficacy of these drugs, okay? Now, the first antipsychotic came in in 1955. That was Thorazine. And here it is in 2019. And you ready for this? There has never been a short term placebo controlled trial in medication naive people. Never. By this, you know how they do the studies? Even short term. Most of them were done in hospital settings with people who've been on the drugs. So they, they take everybody off the drugs. And then hopefully the idea is then you'll get more psychotic symptoms because you've abruptly withdrawn the drug. And then you either randomize people to placebo or you put them back on an antipsychotic. And with great regularity, it's true. The people that have been abruptly withdrawn and gone to placebo, they're not doing well, okay? And that's your evidence base for short-term efficacy. This, by the way, was admitted in a paper um, about a year and a half ago by people at the American Psychiatric Association, which were basically trying to Defend antipsychotics anyway, there's a German uh, research group now that's trying to mount the first short-term study of Antipsychotics in medication naive people and here's why the placebo that other design is so problematic You're going to go on this drug you're going to become used to it. Okay? Then you take away the drug it that you're at a much higher risk of relapse than if you'd never been exposed to drugs for the first place so there's a placebo group in those studies is problematic, but that doesn't even get to the long-term stuff. In fact, if I would have told, if we would have told this, uh, had this meeting two years ago, I wouldn't have brought this up. I just said, okay, short-term efficacy, it's there, but even that's being called into question now. All right, so how do they determine that these drugs are helpful long-term? Same type of design. They take a, a group of people who've stabilized well on the meds, which isn't everybody. Okay, so they take good responders. <laughs> Okay, so now what they're going to do is they're going to uh, take half off abruptly, okay? That's good, but they'll give them a placebo pill. The half is maintained on the drug, so they just stay on the drug, okay? Now they're going to measure who relapses at a higher rate. In other words, who has a return of psychotic symptoms. So you have one group that's been a good responder to antipsychotics. They stay on the drug, and you compare that to the group that it was yanked off the drug and kept off the drug, and sure enough, this group has a higher relapse rate. In other words, if psychotic symptoms return, if it's done out of the hospital, they're more likely to be rehospitalized. So that is seen as evidence that staying on the drug uh, reduces the risk of a relapse. Do you see that? Okay. That's the evidence cited for long-term use of antipsychotics. All right. Does that tell you how the person is functioning? Oh, well, does it even tell you whether they're very psychotic over longer periods of time? What it tells you, really, is if you're doing well on the meds, don't stop them abruptly. That's really what it tells you, okay? Well, beginning in the late 60s and starting the early 70s, there was some understanding that how are we affecting people long-term, their ability to work, their ability to socialize, and there was some worry that in fact they were seeing some medicated people having more severe breakdowns than they used to see before they had the drugs. So they do three studies in the 1970s designed to reinvestigate, to investigate the longer-term course of antipsychotics. This is going to be real key because something's going to happen at the end of this that's going to be the pivotal moment in this whole story of evidence. So the first one, real quickly, was a study done um, at California. People go into the hospital They're randomized in the hospital, either to drugs as usual or to no drugs, okay? Then they're discharged. They're followed for three years. This is called the Rappaport study. At the end of three years, the group that was randomized to placebo in the hospital was doing much better as a group than the group randomized to drug. 24 out of 41 at the end of three years in that randomized to non-drug group, to placebo, Never had to go on the drug in three years. And basically, you were seeing a two-thirds recovery rate. All right? So what does Rappaport say? If we're interested in long-term outcomes and social functioning and work function, we may have to rethink this. Okay? Because in this one, this was first episode, the placebo group had never been exposed to drug. There was another study done by the head of the NIMH for schizophrenia, Lauren Mosher, People come into a hospital. They're either randomized to a house that is staffed by ordinary people where they do not immediately put people on antipsychotics to regular care in hospital. This group's doing equally well at six weeks. At two years, they're doing better. And in terms of uh, antipsychotic use, 40% at the end of two years in this experimental group had never been put on the drug. 40% used temporarily. Only 20% needed them long-term. So what did Lauren Mosher say? If we're interested in long-term functioning, especially beyond just uh, sort of knocking down the symptoms, maybe we need to rethink this uh, form of care. The final one was done by William Carpenter. He's still one of the big names in schizophrenia. He did an in-house study where people in the hospital, the NIMH hospital, were either treated with drugs or without drugs. At the end of one year, the non-drug treated group was uh, discharged earlier and more actively engaged in social functioning, et cetera and less likely to have psychotic symptoms. So what does William Carpenter say at the end of this? They've got these three studies that run counter to the evidence that says you need to keep people on the drugs long-term. And he issues a question that you haven't heard of but really haunts the whole field. He said, we know that once you go on drugs, you're more likely to relapse if you come off than if you stay on. Okay, that's the relapse studies. But then he says, but we raise the question, what if we never put people on drugs to begin with? Because in these three studies, there was more psychosis in the drug-treated group, okay, over these longer periods of time of one, two, and three years. He said, we raise the possibility that these drugs, antipsychotics, increase the biological vulnerability to psychosis over the long term, the very symptom they're supposed to, treat so this is the haunted moment in the history of modern psychiatry because they have a drug that at least in what they're seeing is helpful over the short term sometimes curb symptoms okay and then if they put people on when they go off they go home they don't like the drug they relapse okay so the doctors see that you need the drug but now science was illuminating a different possibility Maybe if we didn't put everybody on right away, many people would just have a time of psychosis. And the second part is: is there any possibility that drugs are causing a biological change that makes you more vulnerable to psychosis, the very symptom you're trying to treat? Then there were two uh, two uh, people from um, Canada, psychiatrists from Montreal, that said, "We think we know what's happening," and they went back to how drugs act on the brain. So antipsychotics block dopamine receptors. They're acting like a break on dopamine transmission, okay? Now, the brain, being very neuroplastic, will adapt to that. It will try to compensate for that perturbation of normal functioning, and it'll do so by increasing its own dopaminergic activity. And it'll do so in two ways. One, the presynaptic neurons will put out more dopamine than normal for a while. Now, that uh, compensatory adaptation seems to burn out but then the receiving neurons will actually increase the their density their number of receptors for dopamine by 50% or more they're now become super sensitive to dopamine so the irony is they found that the drugs induce the very abnormalities hypothesized to cause psychosis in the first place in other words the drugs drive your brain physiologically into this dopamine super sensitive state so this is called the dopamine supersensitive theory. It was raised in 1978, 79, 80. They did some research. They said basically even if you stay on the drug, it gradually develops in more and more people, percentage, and a, number of per- a high percentage will become chronically psychotic. They called it tardive psychosis. So this was the moment really when the profession is challenged to rethink this whole thing. By the way, uh, real quick this is a story of science. This is not a story of medical advice, okay? If anybody's taken medications, just this is, this is a big-picture thing, okay? It's more about how society thinks about them. It's not about any medical advice because obviously some people do fine on the meds. Anyway, uh, so this happens in 1980. sort of gets pushed aside. It's now 2019. And basically the big question is, do we have evidence that shows that our, the way we use these drugs, in fact, reduces long-term, you know, overall outcomes? And is there a different way of using these drugs and thinking about them? And so what you find, for example, is in study after study, and I'll talk about the most famous one in the United States, is that if you take first-episode people with psychosis, even people who've got a schizophrenia thing, there is a high percentage that if treated, often with benzos to help them restore sleep, okay, but you give them other types of care. You, you try to help restore sleep-wake. You, help, you try to restore their ability to be with other people. And We'll talk about a group that did that. You'll see anywhere from 40 to 67% of the patients will be okay five years later. In other words, they'll have had a time of schizophrenia. They'll have had a time of psychosis. And then they'll get some sort of life back, full life back. But what you see with... Uh, so, yeah. So where do we see then? The best long-term study was done by Martin Harrell at the University of Illinois and Tom Job. Goes back to the late 70s. They, they uh, recruit 200 patients, mostly first episode or second episode, very young into their study. Everybody comes into the emergency room Two Chicago area hospitals, one private, one public. They want a diversity of, 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 of patients. Everybody is treated in the hospital with drugs. So this is not a place where we have an experimental group that's not. They're discharged, and now he's going to just follow them at two, four and a half, seven and a half, 10, 15, and 20 years. And his hypothesis is those who take themselves off will have horrible outcomes. He expects to prove that the use antipsychotics forever is a good, is a a positive. Now, at the end of two years, he has 64 schizophrenia patients, 100 and, um, what is that, 134 with milder disorders. At the end of two years, 25 of the schizophrenia patients have taken themselves off the drugs. And that 25 versus the 39 still on, they're about the same at the end of two years in terms of about two-thirds are psychotic, a lot of anxiety, not very well-functioning. And then Martin Harrell shows us something we don't see anywhere else. What happens between year two and four and a half? Among the group off medication, um, you see their psychotic symptoms abate. You see their anxiety symptoms abate, such that by year four and a half, 40% are in recovery, which meant asymptomatic, working or back in school, and decent social life. Among those who were taking their medications, the recovery rate was 5%. So there was an eightfold higher recovery rate for the off-med group. That stayed the same up through 15, 20 years. So the first eightfold higher recovery rate for the off-med group. The other thing was, if you compare these two groups, on-med, off-med, the on-med group as a whole was also much more likely to be really chronically ill and chronically disabled, and much more likely to be psychotic as as they went through, you know, ultimate years. So what does Martin Harrow say from the best long-term study we have, we've had, 2008? He went to the American Psychiatric Association. I'm sure you didn't read about this. He said, I conclude that schizophrenia patients off medication have significantly better long-term outcomes. But none of you heard this. You didn't read it in your paper because it goes so against uh, common wisdom. Anyway, we now, since then, we have about six long-term studies that have been done. Most of them since published 2010. At the very least, they find every time a higher recovery rate for the off-med group, every single one. And so, what is what is now Martin Harrell writing about? He's saying he's going back to this idea that the drugs cause dopamine supersensitivity. He says maybe the problem is that these drugs cause the very Opposite of what they're originally intended to do. So originally they're intended to block dopamine activity, right? But they're driving the brain into this dopamine supersensitive state, and maybe that's the problem. So hidden away from the public, that idea is very much alive, okay? Um, I need to do this. The depression story is very similar. What you see with the depression story, without going into the studies, as early as 1970s, you see psychiatrists who are used to teaching depressed patients saying this. My patients are getting better faster, but they're relapsing more frequently into depression than before. So they raised the question in the early 70s. They said, are we causing a quantification of depression? And then what you see within the American Psychiatric Association is they changed their conception of the course of depression. They say, we used to think it was episodic, but now we know it's really a chronic disorder. People have this chronic problem. Anyway, there's a long group of uh, studies, and more and more coming out, that show that, unfortunately, the use of antidepressants exposes you to more relapse when you come off the drug than you would be otherwise, and that long-term use is, is, is associated with a, a, a risk of what's called tardive dysphoria, it's not exactly depression, but it's a low-level sort of I-don't-give-a-damn-about-life. And now the researchers looking into that problem are coming up with the same explanation. Maybe the problem with antidepressants is it's something called oppositional tolerance. So antidepressants, right, they up serotonergic activity. Your brain, in response to that, dials down its own serotonergic activity. You're driving the brain into a sub state. And they said it's causing the opposite of what is originally intended. So what you see now in the research literature, and I know this was quick in 45 minutes, and I hope it didn't confuse you any more than it confused me when I went off the rails there. Um, Away from the headlines, away from what the media is, what you read in the media is A, chemical imbalance story didn't pan out. B, there was this other thing where they found that the drugs you know, perturb normal function and in response to that your brain goes through these changes Okay, the opposite of what is the drug originally intended. Now here's your problem let's say you go on an SSRI which ups serotonergic activity, acts as an accelerator your brain puts down the brake now take away the drug you see the problem you have? You have an abnormal state Same with uh, antipsychotics. Antipsychotics act as a brake. Your brain puts down the accelerator. Now take this away. So the thought is, of course, this is what is leading to excess relapses and also more severe relapses. That's in the research literature quite clearly now. By the way, in response to this book, there were some psychiatrists that were trying to, big people in the APA to say, do we have evidence? They want to say Whitaker's wrong do we have evidence that antipsychotics improve the long-term course of schizophrenia? And they said the only evidence we have is the relapse studies. And to give you an example of how science can be illuminating, we can now talk a little bit, and then I'll, we'll open up for questions and answers. If you have this scientific understanding, right, what you might say is, well, what, you're going to try to make use of the drugs for whom and for how long, more cautiously, Right. And you're also going to put money into developing alternative ways, right? Does that make sense? So, real quickly, northern Finland in the early 1990s developed a new form of care called open dialogue therapy where they reconceived the psychosis. They say psychosis doesn't reside in the head of the individual. Psychosis resides in the in-between spaces. There's a disruption. And because of that, the person becomes afraid, unable to be with other people. Maybe there's some sleep disturbances, et cetera. So they treat the environment. The idea is, well, they'll bring the whole environment, friends, family, and they'll try to find out where the, where is the disruptions. They'll try to help the person retain a narrative when they could be with others in the past, rebuild a narrative of a future, a possible future. And here's how they use antipsychotics. When people come in, they do not put them on antipsychotics. Okay, they do use benzos to help restore sleep wake. So it's not an anti drug model. Now, as long And they'll have intensive care up front, okay? This is not a no treatment thing. This is a lot of care. Um, As long as the person's, quote, grip on life is getting better, they're willing to meet with people, maybe they're willing to bathe at something, they'll avoid using the antipsychotics. Now, if someone is not getting better after, say, three, four weeks, two months, they will use the drugs, okay? You can start to see a selective use model. Then they'll use the drug for a time with the hope that it'll uh, help abate the anxiety, help people come in meetings. And then after about six months, of that group that's been exposed, they'll see who can come off and who needs to stay on long term. So this is not an anti-drug use. It's for whom and for how long, which actually is always the key to being good medicine. You try to figure out for whom do the medicines benefit and for how long. Now, what are their outcomes at the end of five years? At the end of five years, if you look at their first episode psychotic patients, 80% are working or back in school and asymptomatic. And if you go to this part of Finland, they'll say, we've completely changed our understanding of what is the course of psychosis slash schizophrenia. We see it mostly as an episodic problem now. Medication use at the end of five years, 67% have never been exposed to drugs, antipsychotics. 13% use them temporarily and 20% long-term. So it's not an anti-drug model. It's a best-use model. And so really what they're finding here and this is the same thing Lauren Mosher found, Rappaport found. There is a significant portion, percentage of people, at first episode, if you treat them, you provide them with safety and care. This is not no treatment. But if you don't put them on antipsychotics right away, about two-thirds it looks like, with time, can, can, do, can be okay. And you can have more of an episodic problem. Now, when we do say, if you go to Northern Finland, they'll say, you know, some of these people are still strange. You know, they're eccentric, but they're engaged in life, okay? And here's the most amazing thing. The people who are in their program, when matched against a cohort, you know, at year five, and they match against a cohort of similar people who don't have, you know, any psychiatric issues, This group has a lower unemployment rate than the comparative group. That's how good they are about getting people back in in care. Anyway, the final thing is um, we can talk. There's a lot of Norway, for example, partly in response to this information about long-term outcomes. Their government, their health ministry, ordered every hospital to set up medication-free beds for people who want care but don't want to have the medication. What you are seeing now in this discussion, because uh, at least on a public health level, things haven't gone well, and when people have turned their attention to long-term outcomes, you just do not see that medications, on the whole, in the aggregate, improve people's lives in terms of symptoms, functionality, that sort of thing. It's true with ADHD. The ADHD um, long-term studies are negative for the medicated group. We have more and more studies related to antidepressants that are showing that they worsen long-term outcomes. So what you increasingly see in country after country is a moment of crisis because we've had one story that we organized ourselves around. We medicated our kids, and now we have 40 years of data, and the data is we don't know the pathology of these things, Um, we don't have evidence we're improving long-term outcomes. We have the reverse. We have a rising sort of burden of, uh, in terms of public health. So what you see increasingly is a rising discussion about should we change our thinking? And just to let you know, like, uh, for example, I was invited to give a talk uh, to work groups at, at UK's, parli- UK's Parliament that is working on this very question. Uh, I was asked to speak in Israel's to the Ministry of Health about this. I've, I've spoken at Fiocruz, which is the big Brazilian research institute. My point is, what you're seeing in country, country, uh, is this rising burden of mental health, and these pretty disturbing long-term outcome studies. And just to finish this up, one of my so my background is as a journalist. My feeling that the problem we have is an informational flow problem. I actually think the drugs can be put to use if it's inconsistent with the actual science. So uh, after Anatomy of Epidemic happened, uh, we formed a website called Mad in America. And you can go on Mad in America, and you can find this research. So you can put in antidepressants and long-term outcomes, and you'll find a list of studies on this, okay? You can do the thing with antipsychotics. And you can do it with ADHD, so you can go see the studies and the studies that are happening. So we have a a science report every day. Five days a week we have a new science report. And you don't read it in your newspapers because it really doesn't fit with certain sort of guild and financial interests. But these are all published studies. So if you want to inform yourself and, and see this, that's why we have this website. We also have people writing their personal stories, that sort of thing. We talk about alternative programs. There are some great alternatives that are coming out. We can talk about them. But I think, in terms of the heart of changing the discussion, you need to know the science so you can see you can have a science based discussion about how we can help each other. So, all right, thanks.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast of a Science for the Public event. Please check out our website www.scienceforthepublic.org for videos of all our events lists of upcoming events our weekly Sci News Roundup newsletter and timely science information.